Hey, What the Health listeners, this is Julie Rovner. If you like our show, then you should check out Sick, a podcast from WFYI and PRX. This season, the team at Sick is investigating prisons. Incarcerated people are entitled to health care under the Constitution, but a lot can go wrong in a place that's supposed to keep people healthy, yet designed to punish them. What happens inside a prison affects all of us. Visit sickpodcast.org and listen to Sick wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Robner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, December 9th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Joanne Kennan of Politico and the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. Hello, everybody. Sarah Carlin Smith of The Pink Sheet. Hi, Julie. And Rachel Kors of Stat News. Good morning. Well, no interview this week, but more than enough news to make up for it. So if it is December, which it is, there's likely a must-pass bill for Congress in order to avert Medicare cuts. These are known on the Hill as Medicare extenders, I'm using air quotes, because they are policies that have to be periodically extended or else they expire and cost providers money. That's something that does not go unnoticed by doctors, hospitals, and other Medicare providers whose lobbyists frantically run around on Capitol Hill looking for a bill to attach these year-end policies to. Except this year, it looks like the Medicare extender bill will serve as the engine and not the caboose. It's part of a compromise that will, if I understand it correctly, allow Republicans to vote for the Medicare provisions, which tend to be bipartisan, and make a temporary change to the Senate filibuster rules so the Democrats can raise the federal debt ceiling and avert a financial catastrophe without Republican votes or a Republican blockade of the debt ceiling bill. Am I describing this all right, or can it all just kind of chalked up, be chalked up to Congress doing, you know, its job? Rachel, you're following yes, this, right? I have been following this. And I think something that's interesting and important to point out is that this package of Medicare policies isn't our typical, like, quote-unquote, Medicare extenders that we usually talk about. It's kind of a new breed of Medicare extenders because providers got a lot of relief during the COVID-19 pandemic. So we're kind of looking at three main policies. There's a 2% what we call Medicare sequester cut. That had gone into effect in 2013 and had stayed into effect until the CARES Act last year. So providers had kind of gotten used to those cuts, but once they get relief, they don't want to let go of it. So I think that was one aspect. Another one was kind of like a, a workaround for a Trump administration rule to make sure like physicians are paid more because they were trying to pay primary care providers more, but then it's a zero-sum thing. So when you give some money to one person, you're taking it away from another specialty. Um, And then there's also just because Democrats have been using this budget reconciliation process with only 50 votes um, to kind of work on their legislation throughout the year, they triggered additional Medicare cuts of 4%. So adding up, for some physicians, it's almost like 10% cuts that they were facing. So Democrats and Republicans did reach an agreement ahead of some of those cuts, at least into early next year. They didn't completely make them go away, um, but it just 
allows the provider lobbyists to live another day and, you know, potentially head those off in February. Yeah, because, I mean, it, it's important to remember this all goes back to, to budget negotiations, big budget negotiations that say if Congress spends too much on X, then they're going to have to cut Y. I mean, these are all about sort of going after Medicare because it's the big piece in the budget. And also, I think it's important to stress that that most of these cuts, in fact, virtually all of these cuts, don't affect patients. They just affect provider payments. Mm-hmm. But then the argument is that if we have less money, then we can offer less to patients. You know, that's kind of the, the interplay there. This bill, I mean, we're still sort of negotiating over the big social spending build back better bill, but it looks like the wheels seem to be greased and it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Rachel, yeah, I think M- Mitch McConnell said on Tuesday that he expects to have 10 Republican votes to pass this. It's been very controversial because... Raising the debt ceiling is very controversial, um, and doing it on a bipartisan basis these days is very controversial. But he says he has the support. I think they're expected to vote on it in the Senate today, and then the House will take it up at a, a later time. But I think they're, the plan is to avert the debt ceiling on a bipartisan basis. And take care of Medicare. Yes. Knock, knock two things off of <laughs> our continuing agenda. Well, let us move to COVID. Um, what's the latest on what we know about the Omicron variant, Sarah? I've seen all kinds of stuff. It's, you know, it spreads twice as fast, but it doesn't cause as severe disease. Is that kind of sort of what we think now? It seems like the scientists are leaning in that direction. But again, there's still a ton of caveats that we really still need to learn more and study this more deeply. Because one thing that's important to think about is every population that this is impacting in different parts of the world come to it with different levels of prior COVID infections, different vaccine status. So one thing I've seen is, you know, when looking at people in South Africa, a lot of people had prior infections, a lot of South Africans tend to be younger on a whole compared to the U.S. So, you know, you have to be very careful comparing this and they're still learning right now. That does seem to be the general theme, though, is is, is likely um, more infectious, but potentially not as severe. But um, the issue, of course, is at the rate they think it is more infectious. If that many more people get infected, it could still be just as big of a crisis for our healthcare systems and end up leading to just as much severe outcomes. Then we're also starting to learn more this week about how well the current vaccines do against protecting against the variant. And again, a lot of this data is very preliminary. It's looking at kind of lab studies in small populations that, that and the, these lab studies kind of are looking at one aspect of immunity, your antibody response to the virus, and not much more complicated than the immune system. But there does seem to be some consensus building that the vaccines don't do as great a job neutralizing this version of the virus than some of the prior strains we've been facing. And, and speaking of, of people who lack immunity, I did. I saw an interesting press release from the FDA this week. I didn't didn't see a lot of coverage of this, but apparently they've they've approved or at least emergency use a new monoclonal antibody that will be used as a preventative, not necessarily as a treatment for people who are immune suppressed and might not respond well to the vaccines. Is, is this potentially a game changer, at least for, for those people who have been frantic, even though they've been vaccinated, they don't really have much protection? Right. I mean, this seems like it'll be helpful for people that either for whatever reason had some kind of allergic reaction or inability to get the vaccine or, again, have gotten the vaccine, but because of an underlying disease or condition or the state of their immune system don't really respond well to it. So basically, you get like a prophylaxis to course treatment of this AstraZeneca monoclonal antibody combination. And the hope is that this also in combination with the vaccine, if you're able to get that booster protection. And of course, we sort of know like protecting the immune compromise is also good for all of us because 
you know, there's a lots of speculation that when the virus does tend to mutate, it often mutates in people who, you know, have the most trouble kind of fighting it off and have these prolonged infections because of that. So basically, the immune suppressed is where more variants can come from. Right. That's one theory, you know, where what happened with um, this current variant, though, again, there's multiple theories, no sort of proof and so forth. But it's, you know, it's always good to protect the most vulnerable among us. It adds benefits to all of us. So while it seems that there's more reason than ever to encourage people to get vaccinated, um, Republicans on Capitol Hill have launched a legislative attack on President Biden's vaccine mandate for private employers, which, for what it's worth, isn't even really a vaccine mandate. It's a testing mandate that you can get out of by getting vaccinated. In any case, Republicans are using the Congressional Review Act, which allows fast-track votes with only a 50-vote majority needed, to try to cancel the administration's rule because mandates are not popular in general, see the Affordable Care Act requirement for people to have health insurance. Uh, The Republicans managed to pass this with the votes of two Democrats, West Virginia's Joe Manchin and Montana's John Tester. And in the House, while the Democrats aren't going to bring this up, there is an effort by Republicans to get a majority of members to sign a discharge petition, which would bring it directly to the floor. Remember, they would need to turn only three Democrats to make that happen. Now, President Biden has said he would veto this if it got to him, and Congress would need its regular two thirds to override. So it seems unlikely that this will happen. But if it's not going to happen, why are Republicans doing this? Do they do they really think they're going to going to make hay with their voters? Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's why they're doing it. I mean, that we've seen the politicization of vaccine get sharper and sharper and sharper and sharper. I mean, we've, we've talked many times about the politicization of the pandemic and how those of us who cover sort of healthcare politics still didn't ever expect a mask to become a symbol of liberty as opposed to a way of keeping out germs. So there's anti-vaxxing sentiments on left and right. It is not one side doesn't own it, but one side has become larger and more impassioned and more political about it. So we've really seen this become now, you know, in Congress. And there there are probably two Democrats, possibly three. Not all Democrats are entirely comfortable with the mandate, vaccine mandates, as it becomes more political and they're from purpler or, or redder states. Or even sort of states with a libertarian bent. Right. I mean, I'm sure that's why John Tester well, Montana is um, pretty, ended up pr- pretty reddish now. Um, it is pretty reddish, but it's also really libertarian. Yes. So every step of the way on vaccination has become more political. And in Congress, particularly in the Senate, and a large, lot of House Republicans, too, did promote vaccination. Um, but now you even have some who are promoting vaccination, but opposing mandates, you know, because there's still this scientifically, you know, ridiculous way of talking about vaccines. Is it something that's about me, where when you're talking about an infectious disease, it is about everybody. If it is something that only affects me, if I want to take do a risky sport, I'm t- I'm risking myself. But if I'm want to risking be- becoming infected with an infectious disease that I could give to others, such as the immune compromise that Julie was just talking about, it is not just about me and my body. It is about my community, my society, my family, my friends, my coworkers, the people I go to church with, whatever. So that that still doesn't get through. It is it has become the symbol of of liberty, and it's getting more intense, uh, not less intense. 
And oddly, I mean, one of the things that I keep seeing, um, you know, in my social media feeds are doctors in parts of the country, particularly now in the Northeast, that are getting really hard hit by Delta. I mean, we're not even talking about Omicron yet. We're having a Delta surge in a big chunk of the country. Hospitals are overwhelmed. Patients who want non-COVID care are having trouble getting it. Hospitals are starting to to stop, you know, elective surgeries again. And yet people people don't are still, you know, so consumed with uh, this is my individual right not to get vaccinated. Well, if you get hit by a bus and you go to the hospital, you're going to have a problem because of all the people who exercise their individual rights not to get vaccinated are now crowding hospitals with COVID. Well, we've been here before and we're going to be here again. This is just not over. I mean, it comes in waves. Sarah outlined some, I don't want to say hopeful, but relatively hopeful signs that, I mean, I think that we can be reasonably confident that Omicron or Omicron and the fact that we can't even agree on how to pronounce it, you know, how can we agree on anything else? I think we can be reasonably confident, although none of us are ever confident about anything with this virus anymore, but I think we can be reasonably confident that it's not the worst case scenario, right? When it first emerged over Thanksgiving weekend, everything awful was on the table. We do have some immune protection from the vaccines and prior infection. We don't know how much. We do have some vaccine efficacy. We don't know how much we have. It does. There are some hints, as Sarah mentioned, that it might not be cause a serious illness, although if it causes a lot of illness, it still means they're crowded hospitals. So we don't know a lot, but, you know, I don't, I don't think people are quite as panicked as they were the day after Thanksgiving. But it's a bad situation, you know, and in the it's and we've talked a lot about poor countries not having enough vaccination, but they're also having plenty of vaccine hesitancy issues of their own for a whole lot of reasons, some of which are similar to vaccine hesitancy in our country and some are unique to their own circumstances. Yeah, I mean, every now, sometimes I'll throw up my hands and think, oh, we're just, we're such children compared to the rest of the world. And then I'll look around and think, no, they're all, I mean, pretty much everybody around the world is tired of this and they want it to be done. And some some people are just sort of declaring it done when it's not. Uh, and it is not unique to the United States. No. And nor is the politicization. You've seen demonstrations in a bunch of European countries about vaccines, about shutdowns, about all sorts of stuff. It's not, it is tapping into other political trends and political insecurities. So in the meantime, one of the the interesting things that happened this week is that in New York City, uh, Mayor de Blasio ordered all private employers to require vaccines or testing for their workers, the first big city to do this. Are we going to end up where primarily blue areas, which are already more vaccinated than primarily red areas, are basically fully vaccinated in red areas or not? I mean, are we going to end up with this patchwork of some parts of the country are going to be a lot safer than other parts of the country? Or does the fact that everybody moves around a lot mean that everybody's going to be unsafe until everybody is safe? Yeah, I think with that mandate and just all the other ones kind of in the works, I think it'll be interesting to see how the court turn out on this, whether this goes up to the Supreme Court, how if they, you know, decide how extensive that decision is. But, you know, certainly it is very different at the local level right now. And you see the governor of Michigan, you know, saying some states have certain mandate policies. I don't want to do that right now. So I think, you know, we may see more uniformity depending on kind of how this works through the courts. But until then, there definitely is a disparity. But we've seen that pre-vaccination. I mean, we've seen that in terms of when there were stay-at-home orders, you know, how strict were they? How long did they last? How were they lifted? Where were they lifted? You know, we've seen that since 2020. We've seen that since March and April of 2020. Um, you know, since the very beginning, some states have had mask mandates. Some states have not had mask mandates. Some states restricted certain, you know, bars and, uh, you know, tattoo parlors or whatever, and other states did not. It, it has been an inconsistent 
response, largely, not 100%, but largely along uh, red-blue political lines since the beginning. And it's one reason we're in the mess we're in. So meanwhile, we are still, after almost two years, unable to figure out how to get people tested in short order, either prophylactically or for those with symptoms. We talked a little bit last week about how the Biden administration's quote-unquote winter COVID strategy includes requiring insurance companies to reimburse covered people who buy at-home tests. But that doesn't even start until mid-January, and it's not retroactive. Why is this so hard? This seems to be one of the things that other countries are managing to do that we are not. One problem the U.S. has faced here is we have less of these tests approved. So there's less competition. So the companies making them are charging more. You know, even the the tests that are approved in the U.S. are often available much cheaper overseas. Um, Or free. I mean, apparently they're like being handed out. Right. And I I think what public health experts say about these tests is that's really the best way to actually get them to be used and used frequently enough to make a difference. And the U.S. is so far really resisting that call. There is a sort of, I think, infamous now snide remark, maybe is the way to put it, with from um, President Biden's press secretary at a White House press briefing this week, where she was pushed about why the White House isn't doing more to make it, these tests more available, more affordable. And she said, well, what do you want us to do, mail one to everybody? And actually, what most people are saying is, yes. Not only mail one to everybody, mail lots to everybody and don't charge um, because we just know that like the lower the barriers to access and the more we give these to people, the more they're likely to use them. But right now, the policy the Biden administration is going to put in place in mid-January only applies to people with private insurance. You're going to have to dole out your money first and then try to deal with getting reimbursed. It's not clear what they will actually reimburse you for. So are you going to have to sort of prove you had some sort of medical symptoms that made you want to get a test versus deciding, okay, I have like a family wedding to go to, but I want to be safe and make sure I'm not infectious first. They might say, well, that doesn't count. And so basically, it's been a big struggle in the U.S. to really implement these broad sweeping public health measures in the way that other countries are just more used to tackling public health. They have to be both affordable and easy to get to. To say, well, those of you who are privately insured can submit a claim, you know, the way Sarah just outlined, versus, you know, they're going to be at community health clinics, they're going to be at places like that. You can go get one if you need it. They, they just have to be accessible. They have to be someplace you don't have to skip work. You don't have to hire a babysitter. You don't have to get on three buses to get to the clinic, you know, the clinic. They've just got to be in your home or really visible. You know, there are some places we've seen some pop-up centers for testing, you know, a tent. So if you're going to have them in the, you know, some combination of mailing them to people, I think one of the arguments about mailing them is you're, some people won't use them and it'll just cost money and they won't use them. But, you know, so, so maybe come up with some hybrid that you mail some, but you also have them visible, free, cheap, you know, in a pop-up tent. Or I think in Europe, they're at the grocery store and at the convenience store. Just make them, make them where you can get them. Make them where you can get them and, and where it's easy to get them and where it doesn't, where it's not nine to five and where there's no barriers and there's no language. And, you know, the, the word public health people use and, and we've used it at times is, is layers. There's not one solution to fighting a pandemic that's this deeply entrenched. You need to do lots of things, lots of protective layers, lots of surveillance layers, lots of, lots of tools. So, 
testing. Yeah, if you were to go to a wedding or you're going to have people over or, or Thanksgiving or whatever, 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 you know, make sure you're not infected. And also these new drugs, particularly the, the new Pfizer drug and there are others in the pipeline, they seem to be really, really, really effective and really important in saving lives. But you got three days to take them. And sometimes your symptoms can be really, really mild or at least start out really mild. So to have the incentive, do I, do I have a sniffle today or do I, is this the beginning of COVID because I've got three days to find out and get that medicine, particularly for high-risk unvaccinated people, you need testing available. And those home tests, you would want to, you would want to confirm it if you think you're sick. You'd want to make, you'd follow it up with a PCR. But as a one layer, you got to have testing. Aaron Carroll last night in the Times um, had a really good explanation of, of how these work and how, what, how we have to think about them. Particularly now that we know, again, that yes, the vaccines are really good and generally very protective. They're not foolproof. And we have a society that has been resistant to, you know, most restrictions, our, our, our activities and behavior. We have to have these, you know, what public health people call these harm reduction approaches. And we're used to thinking about this, I think, in some other sectors of public health, like condoms for safe sex, PrEP maybe for HIV, but we sort of have to get that like ingrained in our society, like, sure, okay, fine, you guys can all go to this concert and take that risk, because it becomes much safer if everybody has this cheap rapid test beforehand. And without that, we're just, again, we're kind of allowing this pandemic to keep simmering and burning. So the difference between taking a test and keeping your fingers crossed. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, we spent a whole lot of time last week talking about the Supreme Court and abortion. Uh, so much time, in fact, that we didn't even mention that the high court also heard two other health cases, um, significantly less high profile, but still important. One of those cases has to do with the 340B program. That's a federal drug discount program for facilities that serve low income populations. We have talked about it before. Specifically, hospitals are seeking to reverse a cut to the program made by the Trump administration and allowed to continue by the Biden administration. But one way or the other, this case is going to create winners and losers in the hospital community. Right, Rachel? This is sort of like what you were talking about before. If one hospital, the, the, the cuts that they made went to other hospitals and if the cuts get reversed, those other hospitals are going to lose them. Mm -hmm. That's right. And I think that came up during the arguments, too, that there are hospital groups, associations that are on different sides of this case. Um, and this specifically, there are some metrics that a hospital has to meet to be eligible for these 340B drugs, you know, related to, I think, like Medicaid inpatient hospital days. So I think some hospitals really benefit, but like the for-profit hospitals aren't eligible for these benefits at all. So they think it's kind of unfair that they don't get them. And some studies say that they provide similar levels of uncompensated care to nonprofit hospitals hospitals. And again, not all not-for-profit hospitals qualify for these either. And it's both of these cases, I think that it was interesting to listen during oral arguments that the justices were a little frustrated sometimes and were just like, these formulas are so complicated. How are we supposed to understand it? Most of the commenters didn't understand it on these rules. So um, I think they you know, are doing their best to wrap their arms around it. But especially with this 340B case, the liberal justices were more kind of focused on the formulas, focused on how the government sets these pay rates, whereas the more like conservative justices were focused on these larger issues of how much 
authority does the judiciary have to check rules made by the executive branch? So it's kind of unclear exactly how far they're going to veer in either direction right now. Like this could either be a really narrow ruling or something really broad. So I think it wasn't really clear which direction they were going. So we're just going to have to wait and see. This issue of how broad they go with this ruling, there were some conservative justices, my colleague who covered this case pointed out that seem to want to use this case to potentially take like a big swing at Chevron deference or the Chevron doctrine, which basically says that if Congress has kind of written laws that are not super clear, a little ambiguous. Basically, the agencies in charge with kind of writing the rules and carrying out the administration of those laws get this sort of deference to figure out how to make those work or what Congress intended. And there were a few justices that seemed like they might take this 340B ruling and sort of go beyond whether, you know, CMS had the authority to issue this rule here and payment cuts for judge and just more broadly attack the concept of Chevron deference, which would be hugely consequential for pretty much every federal agency writing rules. So again, I'm not sure they have enough justices to do that. But there was like one line where um, I think it was the chief justice asked AHA, you know, if we have to deal with Chevron deference and really overhaul it for you to get a win here, what's your reaction? And they were just kind of like, well, we want to win. So <laughs> that could be interesting to follow going forward. That's the, the classic, be careful what you wish for. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because it would affect not just every federal agency, but it would affect Congress, too, because it's about the agencies interpreting what Congress does. And that's actually, we should get to the other case, um, which is in, in some ways similar. It involves hospitals that serve a quote unquote disproportionate share of low income patients. And if you think the 340B case is complicated, this one apparently turns on the definition of the words entitled to in the Medicare statute. But again, lots of money potentially at stake. And Chevron deference, whether whether entitled to, I think this this one has to do with whether people are actually entitled to Medicare or whether they're both entitled to Medicare and getting it. It has to do with entitled versus eligible. And I think there was an issue about the over 65 population versus the disabled population, which became eligible years after the original over 65 population. I did not listen to it, but I read accounts of it. And it was just like, Closest the Supreme Court can say to WTF. (laughs) (laughs) Also, it makes you wonder why they took the case. (laughs) Like they did, they didn't understand it. It's really mushy law. Um, You know, whoever wrote it needed to go back to law school writing a refresher course. It was really murky. And because of these larger issues about who gets to interpret and and who gets to decide, it it has implications beyond. They'll probably try to narrow, do this one narrowly because it's so bizarre. They, I don't know that they're going to use this to hang large philosophical statements about the, the role of the, the administrative state. Yes. I'm, I'm trying to remember the last time the Supreme Court had a bunch of convoluted, complicated, sort this out Medicare cases. Um, but just a reminder, it is often several months after the court hears a case that we get a decision, although these aren't the kind of blockbuster cases the court typically holds on to for its last days of the session. We're likely to see the abortion decisions at the very end. But we could see these uh, cases, assuming they figure out what they want to do uh, around February or March. Um, so I want to check in on the trial of Elizabeth Holmes 
roots in California. She's the Stanford dropout who founded Theranos, a Silicon Valley startup that promised to be able to run thousands of blood tests with just a few drops of blood from a finger, a promise the company proved unable to keep. Holmes is on trial for fraud, specifically for lying to investors about things like contracts with the military, which didn't exist, and endorsements of the Theranos technology by pharmaceutical companies, which also didn't exist. I confess I am obsessed with this story ever since uh, the company's fake it till you make it cover was blown by the Wall Street Journal's John Kerry Rue in 2015. Most of the coverage of the trial has centered on whether it might help clean up some of Silicon Valley's excesses uh, to, to wit that sort of fake it until you make it. How long can you fake it and how legally can you fake it? But I wonder whether it might also help people think twice about promises not kept about health technology, too. There's so many health startups. Um, you know, we, we hear all these big promises. And, you know, on the one hand, science does amazing things. Look at we now have treatments and vaccines for this disease that didn't exist two years ago. But we also have Theranos out there. I mean, what is this sort of going to what are people going to take away from this? There's a lot of things in health tech there's a lot of VC money, there's a lot of money, um, and a lot of it ends up not working or does less than it works, but it doesn't really have a health-improving significant impact. But this was blood tests. This wasn't like how many steps did you take or some smoothing record-keeping or something. I mean, this is this was alleged lies about blood tests, that, and people depend on blood tests to find out if they have diseases or whether their treatments are working. I mean, it's sort of catapulted into a whole different class, plus sort of her story and how she sold herself. And she was, a, you know, an image genius and a publicity genius and a getting rich, powerful people to invest in her genius. And it was nothing. I mean, they didn't work and the machines didn't work. They were taking them to regular labs to do everything that is alleged to be true. It was a pretty shocking, it's, it's, it's beyond the rest of health IT in the sense of, you know, the chutzpah level and the um, what was on the line. I mean, the line was diagnosis. That was what was on the line. I think you mentioned the Wall Street Journal reporting and just some of the testimony this week. I mean, she acknowledged that the way we handled the Wall Street Journal was a disaster um, for us. And, you know, we made me big mistakes. So I think that's also, there's a takeaway of like what accountability is out there now. Like, has anything changed? Is it up to reporters to really figure this out? I know there has been some talk about some sort of like quality measures at CBS, but that, you know, it's just really complicated and there's just so much going on here that, yeah, I think that's um, an open question for sure. Yeah, this was, I mean, you know, the, the federal regulatory part of this didn't work very well as it should have. I mean, they were in Walgreens um, all over the Southwest, uh, actually taking blood from people and doing tests. And, you know, as Joanne says, mostly mostly on sort of third-party machines that they had bought because their technology wasn't working. But it, there were a lot of people who got a lot of inaccurate tests of a process that should have been regulated by both the FDA and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services who regulate commercial laboratories. So it's, you know, there. Th this has been a cautionary tale for more than just Silicon Valley, I guess is my point. Is this going to change anybody's behavior or are we all just sort of watching and gaping because this has been quite the fascinating story. I mean, there has been this long running debate or sort of tension between CMS and FDA over who regulates certain types of diagnostic tests. That's sort of it's one of those lingering issues that hasn't gotten resolved, but kind of pops up in and out of Congress and in and out, depending on which political party is in charge at the various agencies and so forth. I haven't necessarily heard a lot of that topic being discussed 
in light of this case, but it is sort of an interesting high profile example to think about whether, you know, if FDA sort of had more authority here versus CMS, could this have been prevented in any way and protected patients differently? So that's one thing to think about. Well, we'll we'll see uh, how how this case uh, ends up working its way out. Finally, this week, we remember former Senator Bob Dole of Kansas. Dole is remembered mostly as a World War II hero, the Republican leader of the Senate in the 1990s uh, when Joanne and I were baby reporters on the Hill and as the failed Republican presidential candidate in 1996. But he was really important to a lot of big health policy achievements. Joanne, you covered him pretty closely. What what stands out to you? Yeah, I covered him on the Hill and I covered I was on his on his campaign uh, parts of 1996. I mean, he was a conservative. There's no question he was a conservative. And earlier in his career, he was really seen as sort of a hatchet man, although by the time Julie and I started covering him, he was uh, somewhat softened and and quite funny. I think he was always quite funny. He was, yeah, but it was, it didn't have a, it, he would have these sort of snarly one-liners followed by a smile. And I'm not sure the smile ever carried on TV. I think that, you know, he sort of seemed snarlier on camera than he did in person. There was sort of a wink in person. But I mean, I think the things he was actually proud of were very bipartisan and very meeting American people's needs. He was had a huge influence in expanding access to food stamps. Um, what we now call SNAP. And we would not have the Americans for Disability Act without Bob Dole. And I think that that, you know, if you asked him, that might have been what he was proudest of. Uh, He came back year after year after year on the Hill to celebrate its anniversary. Uh, He did it with Tom Harkin, who was a very liberal Democrat. And it made, you know, has it solved all access issues and all equity issues for people with disabilities? No. Has it made an enormous change in their ability to go where they need to go and do what they want to do, yes. It's a huge, huge piece of legislation. One of the things I was struck by in a lot of the the sort of retrospectives on Dole was um, him saying, you know, over and over again that compromise is not a dirty word. And I, you know, when I when I was covering health policy in Congress in the eighties and nineties, I mean, everything was about negotiation, and most of the things were bipartisan. There was a, there was a partisan, there was always a partisan fight at the very big level of you know, do we should everybody have access to health insurance or not, but in terms of making the trains run, making Medicare and Medicaid run, um, I was there when they passed the the CLEAR, the Clinical Lab Improvement Act, that, that gave the federal government more authority to regulate, you know, what clinical labs actually do. Those were all, you know, hugely negotiated between Republicans and Democrats, and it took weeks and months, but they usually ended up in a place where where these things would pass sort of overwhelmingly, that most members of both parties would vote for them. And that was due in no small part to people like Bob Dole and his staff uh, and the staffs at the time at the, you know, at the Ways and Means and, and Finance and, and Energy and Commerce Committees that knew how to work together and knew where the landmines were to avoid and actually got things done. I mean, they came to, to Congress to legislate. And I feel like that is sort of not the case anymore. Now they come to, to Congress to make points, but not necessarily make laws. And I Well, that was, you know, one of the things Dole wrote an op-ed before his own death. He wrote it, I believe, last January for publication in the Washington Post after his death. And his final message was really about, I mean, what did he want to leave us with? It was a message about bipartisanship and um, and cooperation and respect. And also, you know, the Post a day or two later ran an op-ed from Tom Daschle, who was the Democratic leader for part of the time that Dole was the Republican leader in the Senate. And again, it wasn't about their battles. It was about 
decency. You know, Dashiell's younger and healthier, 20 years younger and, and healthy, but had it been the other way around generationally, I think Dole would have written the same thing about Dashiell. And that era is no longer, that's not where we're living right now. There was nothing about their battles. It was all about dull service. Yes. And it was not, it was not personal. It was about policy. The sort of the personal shots were rare. They fought about policy. I won't say that there weren't, weren't a lot of partisan disputes, but at the end they would say, okay, well, you're not going to agree with that. So we're not going to do that. Let's, what can we do? As opposed to sort of now, which seems to be an awful lot of talking about what can't we do? Well, yeah, I mean, it was the honor in half a loaf. And now it's like, brush away the crumbs you know that was like i can't get everything i want but i'm gonna i'm gonna fight i'm gonna fight as hard as i can to get as much of what i want ideologically what my party wants but at some point i understand i need to cut a deal and we find a point where we can both live with it and that's what we rarely see now all right well that is the news for this week now it is time for our extra credit segment where we each recommend a story we read this week we think you should read too don't worry if you miss it we will post the list on the podcast page at khn.org and in our show notes on your phone or other mobile device rachel why don't you go first this week so my extra credit is a stat piece by my coworkers Adam Powerstein and Damian Gard and Garde and um, the headline is Biogen's Reckoning: How the Agilehome Debacle Pushed a Troubled Company and Its Fractured Leadership to the Brink. I mean, I kind of heard this was in the works, like, and I had very high expectations sitting down to read it, and it absolutely exceeded them. You know, I think it's just a look into kind of the Agilehome rollout. Um, Biogen's Alzheimer's drug. It was a huge part of their portfolio. And it's just a look into the kind of corporate maneuverings into, okay, so this drug failed. One of its you know, its top scientists is out now. You know, its CEO is looking pretty precarious. And to me, from a health policy context, you know, I think these business stories are really important because in America, we entrust, you know, drug development and the choices about what drugs advance and kind of what the landscape looks like to these investors, to these corporate boards, to these VC firms. And I think this was just really eye-opening to just the messy kind of background machinations that really shape kind of what decisions get made in this arena. So, yeah, it was a great investigation, ton of great detail. Um, and just, yeah, hats off to them. Sarah. I took a look at a, a, an Axios story by Bob Herman that looks into these coalitions that pharmacy benefit managers, which administer the pharmacy side of health insurance benefits for big companies, sort of encourage companies to be a part of. So essentially, there's like this piece focuses on Aon, which basically it sort of encourages companies to sort of join together in these coalitions with the idea that, you know, the more people you have when you're negotiating with insurance companies or PBMs, the better deal you can get. The interesting thing about this story is the contracts and the things these companies are signing to be a part of these coalitions are basically preventing companies from really knowing what the, the PBMs in these coalitions are doing in terms of are they actually getting you the best deals and the best pricing? The PBMs have been sort of pharma's scapegoat or maybe is one way in the drug pricing um, crisis. They often point to them as keeping prices high and not the drug industry. And I, that's probably one part of the crisis, not all of it. But, you know, it, it, it doesn't bode well when you see things where, you know, the people that are supposed to be charged with, you know, helping organizations get people the lowest prices on drugs don't want you to kind of see the 
the fine print of how they're getting there. And so or whether they're getting there. Right. And at a time when, like I said, the industry, the pharma industry is really trying to push PBMs as sort of the evil part of the supply chain to get them a little bit of relief since the drug industry is getting hit pretty hard right now by the hill. You know, this is not a positive story for that industry, even though, again, like I said, I mean, there's nobody can say that it, that the drug pricing crisis is is all on the PBMs or even that a majority of it is. But this sort of doesn't help their case. That's not. Joanne. Uh, Dahlia Lithwick in Slate has a piece called, we're not going back to, quote, before Roe, unquote. And her argument is that if the Supreme Court abolishes Roe or doesn't go quite that far, but upholds Mississippi with a 15-week ban, that it's not the end of the story. It's just the end of this 50-year fight. And another fight is already underway, which would be to limit abortion further, including in the states that allow it, that you know, it, before Roe is the anticipation, it goes back to the 1970s map. Some states allow abortion, some don't. She says the fights in the in the allow abortion, which basically are what we now call blue states, that they would be fights to limit it stringently or get rid of it there too. And then there's another movement called personhood, which is to give an embryo from the moment of conception the same legal rights as a full human post-birth. And that has tremendous implications for criminalizing women who maybe use drugs during pregnancy, who have a miscarriage um, under, you know, could be blamed for it. There have been cases, still rare, but they have happened. You know, it's it just one battleground to another, and we don't know how far it goes or which issues get traction. If and when Roe gets overturned, that is not not only not the end of the story, it's barely the end of the beginning of the story. Um, my story uh, is from NPR by my former colleague, Jeff Brumfield, and it's called Inside the Growing Alliance Between Anti-Vaccine Activists and Pro-Trump Republicans. And it tracks not just how the anti-vax movement, which started out fringy but very bipartisan, sort of far left and far right people, has been embraced by Trump Republicans in particular and many Republicans in general. And as a result, the gap between vaccinated Democrats and vaccinated Republicans has grown. Point in the story, citing statistics from our KFF vaccine survey, quote, 94 percent of Republicans think one or more false statements about COVID-19 and vaccine safety might be true. That includes things like believing that the vaccine changes your DNA or is actually killing people or makes more likely to get COVID, none of which is true. But this is kind of a worrisome trend that we're seeing. Okay, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying. Also, as always, you can email us your questions or comments. Get those questions in for our Ask Us Anything episode. We're at What the Health, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Sarah? I'm at Sarah Carlin. Rachel? At Rachel Kors. Joanne? At Joanne Kennan. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.